The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. How are you? Good, Father. Good to see you. Well, it's mutual, Tom. Father, in a, a recent recent program, you did a, an installment on uh, the Baptism of Desire teaching, mm-hmm. and I believe you have some uh, follow-up information that you'd like to go with here. Well, there is something else that I think would be not worth mentioning uh, in that program I did uh, maybe 10 days ago about the continued uh, controversy about baptism of desire. Um, I mentioned that um, the decree of Pope Eugene IV at the Council of Florence, Cantate Domino, is uh, very, um, well, it's being used. It is used to uh, to uh, try to attack the Church's teaching on the reality of baptism of desire, and falsely used, because uh, the doctrine uh, as taught by Pope Eugene IV in the document Cantate Domino does not actually talk about baptism of desire at all. It just talks about the necessity of belonging to the Church for salvation, a doctrine which really no Catholic denies. Um, The point being that uh, there must be a, a means by which baptism of desire does, in fact, unite one with the Church and enables one to be saved. This is the teaching of the Church, actually, and uh, unfortunately there are those who deny that. But uh, it is interesting, I think, to note that um, in the, uh, the, what they call the, the bulls or the, the constitutions of union, with the Eastern, uh, well, formerly Eastern Schismatics, who returned returned to the Church at the Council of Florence and were reunited with the Catholic Church, there are some interesting statements. Uh, this is where we read about the uh, the statement of Eugene the the Fourth in Cantate Domino. But he says here, though, uh, in his uh, Bull of Union with the Copts. Now the Copts. Uh, were the schismatics of Egypt, okay? And session 11, uh, February 4th, 1442, uh, talked about this, uh, the union of the Copts, bringing the Copts, C-O-P-T-S, back into union with the Catholic Church from their schism. Uh, again, the council under Pope Eugene Fourth says something rather interesting. It says, Concerning children, however, pueros, because of the danger of death which can often uh, pertain to them or happen to them, because uh, with them there is no other, there can be no other remedy applied to them except through the sacrament of baptism, um, by which they are snatched from the dominion of the devil, and are adopted as the children of God, the council 
admonishes that their baptism is not to be delayed for 40 days or 80 days or any other length of time according to any other observance. It said the baptism is not to be deferred for infants, uh, but they are to be baptized as soon as possible. The reason why it is given, the reason why uh, the council gives for their necessity of their baptism immediately is very interesting. Because it says, because there is no other means by which they can be saved. They need the waters of baptism. Now, the fact that the council actually says that, cum ipsis non posit alio remedio souveniri nisi per sacramentum baptismi, because there is, can be no other uh, remedy provided for them, is an indication, it's an implication that with adults, whose baptisms are deferred until they learn the faith, and it can be certified that they really are genuine in their conversion, uh, there is another remedy. And the Council of Trent is what says that. For an adult who uh, comes to the faith and intends to be baptized as a Catholic, they are not to be baptized immediately, as the Council of Trent says, because the same danger does not attend them as attends the children because the adult can have the intention to be baptized and have true contrition for sin. And the Council of Trent says that will avail the catechumen of justification and sanctification. Uh, that cannot apply to children. The fact is, a hundred years before the Council of Trent, or thereabouts, um, the Council of Florence was already indicating that that was true. There's a distinction to be made between the necessity of baptizing the children immediately as opposed to deferring the baptism of adults. And the indication here, even at the Council of Florence in the 1400s, is that uh, the children ought to be baptized immediately because they cannot make that intention to be baptized and they cannot have contrition for original sin. So, you see, for those who want to try to use or, or misuse uh, the decrees of the Council of Florence and Eugene the Fourth to justify their denial of baptism of desire, the actual evidence from the Council uh, shows that they're wrong. Uh, that there is this consistent teaching of doctrine in the Catholic Church. That there is, in fact, a uh, what we call the baptism of desire. Now, we, we always have to make it very clear, okay? When we are talking as Catholics about the baptism of desire, we're not talking in a liberal idea that just anybody who has some kind of quasi-pious thought about God is automatically saved by a baptism of desire. Uh, the idea, you know, the, the prayer, if it is a prayer, <laughs> Oh God, if there is a God, uh, save my soul if I have a soul, that is not baptism of desire, okay? Uh, the Council of Trent makes very clear what baptism of desire is, and that is that the individual is, is preparing to be baptized, has the intention to be baptized in the Catholic faith, and, uh, and for whatever reason, but not through any fault of his own, he does not live to receive that sacrament of baptism. The water is not poured, um, but he does have the intention to be baptized, and he does have true contrition for his sins. And as the Council says, I mean, this is a, a the, the doctrine of the Catholic Church. There are those who want to argue, well, it's not an infallible statement, it's not dogma. 
I'm sorry, that is the ordinary magisterium of the Catholic Church, and yes, that is infallible, and yes, we are bound to accept it as Catholics. That, uh, <clears throat> that it, it will avail, that intention to be baptized, and that contrition for sin, the Council says, will avail him unto uh, grace and justification. So we're talking about justification, forgiveness of sin, and grace, sanctifying grace in the soul. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the person will be saved. Father, recently we've been talking about the difference between dogma and doctrine, mm-hmm. but it, it seems that, that these uh, these references that you're mentioning here, they're, they're doctrine. Has, is there no dogma defined on this matter of baptism of desire? I don't know that there is, and I'll tell you why. Um, there have been anathemas issued in a sense that uh, there are those who have been told that they are excommunicated from the faith for whatever reason, excommunicated from the church, I should say, uh, because of disobedience associated with the doctrine required to explain it, and they, they don't or they won't, such as Father Feeney being summoned to Rome to explain his teaching. But it's easy to understand why he was summoned to Rome, because in the course of uh, lectures he gave that were bound up as a book called, uh, uh, what is it, um, uh, excuse me, uh, it's- I know, I get it mixed up with our daily bread. Uh, bread of life. Bread of life, thank you. Yeah, the bread of life. Thank you, John. Uh, uh, he gives three different explanations. He even says at one point that baptism of desire can put you in the state of grace, but you can't stay that way for long, and you're going to go to hell anyway, eventually. Or even it can put you in the state of grace, and even if you die that way, you're still not going to go to heaven anyway, but you won't go to hell either. So it's as though he's inventing some third place that is permanent, right? Um, so again, no wonder the church summoned him to Rome to explain his teaching, you know, but he wouldn't go. He refused to go. And for that, he was excommunicated. Um, but as far as a a defined dogma of the faith on this matter, no, but if you look back in history, you'll find that the church has, uh, doctrines, many doctrines that have been taught throughout her history. I, I mentioned recently the doctrine of the guardian angels. Uh, to my knowledge, there is no definition of a dogma of guardian angels. But this is a doctrine of the faith, which has been taught from the very beginning, is universally accepted by Catholics everywhere, throughout, always has been. And the Church does not necessarily define a dogma unless a doctrine begins to be questioned or attacked. And um, I liken it to this. I, I liken it to our Lord in the Gospels. I mean, when our Lord spoke, it was divine truth. Uh, everything our Lord said was divine truth. In a sense, everything our Lord said is his doctrine, right? <clears throat> but there were moments when our Lord more solemnly spoke, and he, he spoke more solemnly and forcefully with greater emphasis when he knew that his words would be contradicted. And at times like that, when he knew that his, his words were going to be very difficult for people to accept, uh, he would... Uh, say the expression, Amen, Amen, I say unto you. And that was indication, expression at the time, that meant he was speaking very solemnly, very forcefully, very firmly. And uh, regardless of their reaction to what he was saying, on any other level, he meant it. And uh, they had to accept it. And uh, I see the church going through her history very much the same way speaking the doctrines of the faith uh, throughout the world, throughout time, 
And um, when there is a, uh, a challenge to that faith, now the church has to speak most solemnly through her extraordinary magisterium. <clears throat> but it's a very serious mistake, more than a mistake, it's worse than a mistake, for someone to say, well, what the church teaches in her ordinary magisterium is not infallible. Only when she speaks uh, with her extraordinary magisterium through, let's say, the, the supreme pontiff speaking at cathedra, only there do we actually have to accept as matters of, of faith and morals infallibly true uh, <clears throat> what is said from the See of Peter ex cathedra. But the other doctrines of the church that she's taught throughout time, throughout the church, throughout the world, do not bind us with that same obligation. That's not true. If a, you might have people who would say that because they don't like something like a doctrine such as the baptism of desire. So they, they want to squirm around and say, well, I, I don't have to accept that because it hasn't been taught infallible. But if you got up in the pulpit on a Sunday as a priest and said within their hearing that you don't have to believe in guardian angels because it has never been solemnly defined as a dogma of faith by the church, they would be screaming bloody murder. They'd be, they'd be crying foul. They'd be attacking you. They'd be calling you a heretic. It's just that there's a doctrine here that they don't like. And they are uh, determined to avoid it. But of course, you know, that, <clears throat> that's the stuff of which heretics are made, picking and choosing the doctrines they like, right? And rejecting the ones they don't. <clears throat> There's no question but that it is a doctrine of the faith that there is such a thing as baptism of desire as defined by the church. Um, there is the falsification of that doctrine by the liberals that we reject. But to do what Father Feeney did, to say, well, they go to one extreme, so I'm going to go to the other extreme. <clears throat> they say baptism of desire covers virtually any, any nice thought about the very idea of God, but you're automatically uh, have baptism of desire, you're on the road to heaven. Um, so I'm just going to deny it altogether. So there is no such thing as baptism of desire. It's wrong. That's what the Eutychians did in opposing the, uh, the Arians. You know, so you have one who basically denies the divinity of Christ, the other one goes too far as to practically deny the humanity of Christ. They're both wrong. They're both heretics in that regard. So um, the, the solution to fighting a heresy is not to take the knee-jerk reaction of the opposite extreme, right? The solution is to follow the teaching of the church. The teaching of the church is very clear here. Um, there is such a thing as baptism of desire, and yes, people can be uh, justified and sanctified by it. And yes, they can die in the state of grace. And yes, they can go to he heaven. They can be saved. But um, the conditions describing what that means exactly, what that baptism of desire is, what brings them that grace, the church has to decide that. And we have to follow how the, exactly how the church understands it. It's funny you should mention that, Father, about the, uh, the picking and choosing of, of doctrines. Because I've had discussions with multiple Fenians who, who will say that, that baptismal desire has never been dogmatically defined by the Catholic Church. So it's not something that you have to believe in. It's up to you. You can believe in it if you want to, but you don't have to because it's never been, been solemnly defined. Yeah. But I, I would like to, I would like yeah. to hear their, their answer about the... Uh, well, they might as well say the same thing about the guardian angels. Yeah, exactly. They might, they might as well <laughs> say the same thing that. about so many doctrines of the church yeah. that have never been defined. Yeah. Well, while, while we're on the subject, Father, we, we actually had a couple emails in response to your, your program on, on the baptism of desire. 
the, the, the first one here is, uh, yeah. of course, in regards to Father Feeney. And this viewer asks, if we can say that the position of Father Feeney is blasphemous, to say that an all-just God would condemn someone who discovers the Catholic faith, embraces it, and tends to be baptized, but through no fault of his own, dies before he receives the actual waters of baptism, would be damned. To my way of thinking, that seems to suggest that God is unjust, which, of course, cannot be. Well, unjust, no. I mean, uh, but remember, uh, salvation, heaven, is not a matter of justice. God does not owe it to anyone. It is a pure <clears throat> gift from God. And the grace is, grace is necessary to uh, obtain it. Well, of course, sanctifying grace and all the actual graces to protect, guard, sanctify grace. Those are all pure gifts from God. They're not earned by anyone. So we can't accuse God of injustice for not giving somebody heaven or for not giving anybody, someone the grace to be saved. Um, we can't accuse God of injustice there because he doesn't owe these to anyone. So we have to be careful about that. It's kind of interesting, though, <clears throat> uh, what this individual says because it is repugnant to think of God <clears throat> Uh, almost relishing the opportunity to condemn someone to hell when that person might be saved or could be saved or has some an openness, a disposition, some kind of receptiveness to grace, right? That is, uh, that is repugnant to us because we know that God wants not the death of the sinner but that he be converted and live. We know that, right? Our Lord's own words, words of sacred scripture. So I understand that person's repugnance to it. To say that Father Feeney was <coughs> committing blasphemy, I don't know. I, I, I can say this, though, <coughs> that insofar as Father Feeney says in The Bread of Life that uh, in, in posing questions to himself and answering his own questions, that a soul can actually be in the state of grace uh, by, sanctify, by uh, baptism of desire, die in the state of grace and yet not go to hell but not go to heaven either that is certainly implying a heresy strongly implying a heresy now we're not talking about purgatory we're talking about as a permanent state of that person what what the out, final outcome will be for that person that he's not going to go to heaven he's not going to go to hell father Feeney asks well where is he going to go and his answer is i don't know and so there is an alternative. Now, the, the existence of heaven, the existence of hell, they are, they are dogmatically defined by the Catholic Church, my understanding is, right? So, uh, and I, the fact of purgatory and the fact of limbo, well, limbo, I don't know that limbo has been dogmatically defined. I have to go and, and uh, I think that's a sentencia certa, or what they call sentencia communis, uh, right? The common understanding, the common acceptance, and... Uh, or with this, known with a certitude of faith. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, to have a dogmatic definition is a different, a different matter, as I mentioned. So, um, in any case, I think Father Feeney is definitely implying something heretical there. And I think that's why he was summoned to Rome to answer for, ask for that, to find out what exactly he was trying to do with people. Now, <clears throat> it is kind of curious also, Tom, that with regard to what our, uh, our questioner is asking there, uh, the Brothers Grimm, who I mentioned in the other video, they, they have come up with this, this, this idea that God will not let somebody like that perish, but he'll send an angel to baptize them. 
And at least I've heard partisans of the Brothers Grimm's uh, fairy tales um, promote this idea that God will send an angel to pour water over their soul. Well, that's an interesting thought. <laughs> I'm going to pour water through somebody's soul. How do you do that? Or over somebody's soul? The soul is not a material thing, right? The water couldn't even touch the soul. The water touches the body. If the body is not there, you cannot baptize a soul, a separated soul. So, but they're trying to avoid precisely this 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 scenario of uh, God rejecting and sending to hell someone who has some at least openness to His grace to you know cooperate with His grace to be saved. One thing we know is that uh, uh, whether or not we can say that Father Feeney is blaspheming by saying these things. Um, and, you know, maybe if I read more of his personal writings, I would say, yes, I think this is blasphemy. The statement is blasphemy or that. I don't know of any statement by him that I would necessarily consider blasphemous. <clears throat> I mean, there are, you know, things are coming to mind here. And again, bread of life. When he talks, I think it's page 125 or something, the edition I read, <clears throat> somewhere around there. When he talks about uh, the soul being put in the state of grace by baptism of desire, <clears throat> but it's impossible the person could be saved anyway because he can't stay that way. And he raises the claim, well, how long can you stay in the state of grace? I'm gonna t- two, three days. But, I mean, that is that is... I think that is, again, implicitly blasphemous, because if one had the justification and, and even sanctification through the same state of grace that comes from baptism of desire, as the Council of Trent says, right? um, then that's the work of God in the soul. That's God's grace. And who's going to tell God, okay, God, you got two days, you got two or three days, that's all you get. You know, and after that, this soul is, is you got to pull your grace back, let this soul lapse back into mortal sin so he can die and go to hell. Who's going to tell God that? But it sounds like Father Feeney has is, is, is got this mechanistic idea of grace and doesn't take into consideration the will of God to save souls. It's so strange to thrust it on the individual as though grace is purely a matter of the individual. And as soon as he gets in the state of grace, the, he, the, the button starts, the countdown starts like you're playing some kind of chess game. You run out of time, you haven't made your move, you lapse into the state of mortal sin, and boom, you're gone, you die, and you go to hell. I'm sorry, that, that is nonsense. That is not Catholic theology. And that's not the Catholic faith. That how grace works in the soul, and how the soul cooperates with grace. And so if God is going to put the soul in the state of grace in this, what you'd have to call an extraordinary way. Why can't God preserve that soul in the state of grace by, by the same power? It doesn't add up, what he's saying. So again, I think that it also is implicitly, and you might even say implicitly blasphemous, because it almost denies, imply, implies that God does not have the power to preserve that soul in the state of grace, that it may be saved. Uh, so I think the questioner is on the right track, certainly, and I read in the questioner's reaction a sort of a, a sense of being offended about the goodness of God. That there's some some something here to undermine or attack the very idea of God's will to save souls. Uh, we got another email here, Father, asking uh, for some clar- clarification and some comments here. Uh, so this this viewer writes in and says that I have always been taught that baptism of desire 
also applies to the Bushman who has never heard anything about organized religion nor even the name of Christ, yet lives well according to natural law. This is the truest case of invincible ignorance. And then he provides a quote from My Catholic Faith by Bishop Morrow, who says, uh, One who, not knowing the necessity of baptism, sincerely wishes to do all required for salvation, is said to have received baptism of desire. That passage is usually extended to include invincible ignorance for Protestants who have never been preached the truth and have never rejected the true Catholic faith. They just didn't know. That is, one not knowing the necessity of the Catholic Church, yet baptized, has also invincible ignorance. Surely most of the world falls in this category today. Would you comment on that, Father? Um, you know, I'd have to look that passage up in Bishop Morrow's uh, catechism. But I, I, I see a, something like a, a non sequitur in it. Okay, the Aborigine or the Bushman, okay? He um, has goodwill, right? And he uh, desires to be saved, okay? Well, how can it be desired to be saved unless he already has some understanding of what salvation is? I mean, what does that mean? In order to desire to be saved, basically, if you're talking about it, the desire to save his soul, he has to understand he has a soul. The idea of safety has to have an idea of God. He has, an idea, has to have an idea of God, God's justice and mercy. He has to have some very some ideas anyway to even have any desire to be saved or any notion of what salvation is. Right? And uh, he has to have an idea of some kind of a, a, a means of salvation for him. He has a conscience. He would know that he does things wrong. If he knows there's a God who punishes. Uh, wrongdoing and rewards well-doing, right? Then he must realize that he's a sinner, at least, to recognize the need for salvation, and he would have to necessarily see somehow a savior implied somewhere in there, at least, you know, some sense of this. So it's not as easy as saying, well, you know, some bush in the in the outback there and and uh, the um, in the shadow of Air's Rock, you know, uh, <clears throat> wants to be saved, wants to do everything possible to be saved, and he's trying to be really faithful to his conscience. You know, this this scenario is uh, very fanciful. <clears throat> now, the reason why I'm saying it is not because it's impossible. The reason I'm saying it is it doesn't occur naturally. There has to be grace involved. There has to be the grace of God involved here. You can't just say that somebody's out there wandering around in this naive innocence uh, as though he somehow <clears throat> strayed into the Garden of Eden, <clears throat> right? Checked his original sin at the door, uh, well, the gate or the fiery sword, whatever, <laughs> and now is wandering around with this perfect natural innocence. And, and you know, It doesn't happen. <clears throat> I consider that statement to be kind of nonsensical myself, you know? In terms of the Catholic faith. Look, what you need to be saved, you have to have the virtues of faith and hope and charity. You have to have the supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity. The supernatural virtue of faith doesn't necessarily mean you know everything there is to know about Catholic doctrine. It doesn't mean you have to know everything that's in the Baltimore Catechism or the Catechism of the Council of Trent. It doesn't mean you have to know everything. It means that you have to have a knowledge of the faith, such as we were talking about, a knowledge 
that there is a God who is just, rewards what is good, and punishes what is evil, right? Well, how you have to conscience that you're responsible for your behavior and you're answerable to God, that you need a Savior and that you want to be saved and want to be forgiven for your sins before God and want to be just before him. Yeah, I mean, there are some basic things that you absolutely have to know, fundamental truths that are necessary for salvation. St. Pius X made it very, very clear when he wrote uh, Acervonimis, um, 1905-1906, sometimes get them mixed up with vehementer, but 1905-1906, Acervonimis, he was saying at the time <clears throat> that there are many Catholics in the world who don't have the basic knowledge of their faith enough to be saved. But the statement that he makes, it's like the, 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 uh, the, the reverse of the statement but there is a basic amount that needs to be known to be saved. It implies that, to say the least. But there are some fundamental truths that are sufficient to allow one to be saved. And uh, if, if one has the virtue of faith from God, he's going to have the knowledge of those, those fundamental truths. And um, he, he will have the virtue of faith in his soul, meaning that he wants to know the truth about God, about his own soul, about salvation, about right and wrong, all these things, okay? Um, and, uh, and, and implicitly, he already does believe them. He believes whatever God reveals to him is true. That's a virtue of faith, right? Make that intellectual assent to whatever God reveals is true. And um, also with regard to... Um, Hope, hope is a supernatural virtue. You place your confidence in, in the power of Almighty God to keep His promises, to be just in His judgment, but also be merciful, and to provide the graces and the helps you need to, to follow His will, to be faithful to Him in His commands, and that if you are, you will be saved. Uh, without the virtue of faith, there is no salvation. Without the virtue of hope, there is no salvation. But beyond that, you have to have the virtue of charity. There has to be a real love, a supernatural love for God, not just some nice, warm, fuzzy feelings about God, you know, whatever we take that to meet at any given moment out in the world. No, no, no. Uh, to know, to have a true knowledge of God by faith and to love what you know about God, to love God. And there are those who say, and I, I believe it's true, that in order to, in order to, be saved by baptism of desire, for example, I think you can make the case on the basis of what the church has taught that you need the supernatural virtue of faith, you need the supernatural virtue of hope, and you would have to have a perfect love for God. <clears throat> if you read the Catechism of the Council of Trent, it doesn't actually say that. I think theologically you could make the argument for it, but, but the Catechism of the Council of Trent says that if one intends to be baptized and has true contrition for his sins, doesn't say perfect contrition, and it doesn't say perfect love for God, but if he has true contrition for his sins, that intention to be baptized, and that, will, that, that, that contrition for sin will avail him unto grace and justification. Quote, unquote. So, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the bottom line of all this is, to receive the, the grace of the virtue of faith, to receive the grace of the virtue of hope and to receive the grace of the virtue of charity with a genuine love for God 
at least loving God more than we love ourselves, but they have the intention to be faithful to Him and not offend Him, <clears throat> even without perfect love, but to love Him more than our own selves. Right? That that requires grace from God, and one cannot die with those virtues in his soul and go to hell. Because to have those virtues in his soul, he has to be in the state of sanctifying grace. And to be in the state of sanctifying grace, he has to have those virtues. They have to accompany sanctifying grace. So, um, you see, it's, it's a lot more, there's a lot more involved than just saying that uh, uh, this Bushman out in Africa you know, has some good intentions and wants to be a good scout and you know, do a good job and he wants to be saved. There's so much involved in that. Uh, even the very idea of wanting to be saved, it's easy to say, but you, you have to really understand the significance of what you're saying. And I, I don't know that it really comes through in that statement. Well, there's certainly a lot more that could be said here, Father, on this, on this oh, subject. It seems you know, I'm more than willing to say it ten times. <laughs> it's, it seems it's a yeah. <laughs> The perennial question. But do you follow what I'm saying, though? I think we have to be really, really clear about this because I think it's a lack of clarity and muddled thinking that has really uh, obscured things and created a controversy where there really shouldn't be one. Mm -hmm. do you, how do you think this will get resolved, Father? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I think people are going to uh, appear one by one before the judgment seat of our Lord, and they're going to know. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, Father, I think we have time for just a couple more uh, emails here on a different different topic. I thought this one was interesting. Uh, I'd like your, your feedback here from Ms. Viewer who says, Father, it was brought to my attention through org that the bent slash broken cross frequently used by John Paul II and now Francis is a blasphemous cross as it depicts our Lord and the cross in a twisted and grotesque way. Myself and many other faithful have this cross at home, particularly on rosary beads. The site says that this bent cross was a product of some artists in the 1960s during the modernist invasion. I am now feeling quite uncomfortable praying with, and in particular, kissing this cross on my beads. Should I be concerned? Yes. Okay. Take it off, replace it with a real crucifix. Um, if, you, if you go to Rome and you try to buy a, cruci uh, a rosary, You'll have a hard time finding a rosary without some atrocity like that really? hanging from it. Yeah, it's hard to find now because they have this cult of Francis and they have this cult of John Paul II. And uh, it, it is really alarming. Uh, the broken cross is a, is a satanic symbol. Okay? And not only that, um, I mean the cross itself, but the so-called corpus on the cross is made to look hideous, distorted, monstrous. It's almost like a, 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 a if you if you were to put a li lizard in the oven and, and and fry the lizard, that's what you'd get out of it. You know, it's something uh, really hideous. You know, Tom, you, you go to the Vatican now. You you go through the doors, uh, the the doors to go into the basilica, or the doors you can out the basilica. Um, <clears throat> you will find doors that have been put there by John the 23rd and Paul the 6th. And they are absolutely made of nightmares. The stuff of nightmares are made of. They're supposedly showing the martyrs, but the martyrs look absolutely, they look like demons. 
you know. You go through the Sistine Chapel, you have to go through the Vatican Museum, the Stanley de Raphael, and all this. You, you finally get to the Sistine Chapel, and then there are rooms at, at the end that you can go through at the end of the Sistine Chapel. Not everybody does, but you can go through that have artwork that was collected by Paul VI. Tom, you'd think, you, you think you'd gone to hell. <clears throat> you'd think you went to Satan's own uh, studio in hell. You couldn't think of anything more, uh, more uh, obscene, more grotesque, uh, twisted, hellish than these so-called artworks. And Paul VI reveled in them. <clears throat> uh, everything he touched was as though he got it on, on like... Uh, uh, you know, the, the, he got it shipped in from hell. You know, if they had eBay or Craigslist or something like that, <laughs> you know, if the devil's selling on Craigslist or eBay, I mean, we know who bought all this stuff. Paul VI stacked the Vatican with this stuff. <clears throat> you, you saw the portrait of Paul VI, right? It was published in the Smithsonian Magazine. <clears throat> this, this enormous painting of Paul VI. Well, it's supposed to be a portrait of Paul VI. What it shows is the church toppling down all around him. And this little little shrewish, shrewish face that Paul VI holding a dagger dripping with blood, you know? And Paul VI later said, yeah, that reflects the state of the church today. Oh, boy. Uh, truer words, you know, have not been smoked, and spoken, not by him, anyway. Um, but anyway... So you get this cult of ugliness, that so-called crucifix is not a crucifix at all. It is an abomination. It is a mockery. It is blasphemous. And I would beg whoever has that to detach it. <clears throat> I mean, do not wait till morning. Go out, uh, open up the link, take it, and discard, bury it somewhere, okay? And, um, and get a real crucifix and put it on there. Uh, the real crucifixes are still available, thank, thank goodness. Uh, and then, then I would recommend they have it blessed again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, Father, speaking of the state... By a real priest, though. Speaking of the, uh, the state of the church, there's a uh, great email here that a, uh, a viewer sent in with a link to, a, uh, to an event in Montana, I believe this is, uh, where they're having ecumenical vespers at a cathedral, the uh, Cathedral of St. Helena in Montana. On uh, Monday, October 30th, they're going to commemorate the theological agreements between Lutherans and Catholics to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Bishop George Leo Thomas of the Catholic Diocese of Helena, Bishop Michael Warfell of the Catholic Diocese of Great Falls Billings, and Bishop Jessica Christ and Bishop Mark Ramseth of the Montana Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America will co-lead the service. Any comments on that, Father? Well, I, I just hope to have fun. Um, uh, yeah, that is blasphemous. There's no doubt about it. It's a mockery of, of faith. It's a mockery of Christ. It's a mockery of the true church. And all I can say is, when you read things like that, you're so glad you have nothing to do with this new order. You know, you want nothing to do with this Novus Ordo. And anybody who still does should read that and say, that's it. I, I, I realize there's something very, very wrong with this, and I cannot be a part of this any longer. Mm -hmm. This is a mockery of faith and hope and charity and the Church and Christ and God. You know, it's it's absurd. But Francis is leading the way in all this. I mean, he's the one who's setting the, the, the path for everyone to follow. Yeah. I mean, here he is. 
trumping the fact that we're not going to have women priests, okay? I don't mention this before. Then he goes over, he goes over to Sweden, right? Embraces the female archbishop of the Protestant church there, where he's sort of celebrating Luther with them, and says he wants close ties to the, and to enter into common communion with them. So he's not going to have female priests himself, but he's going to have share communion with her and her clergy, you know, the females. So, uh, again, you know, one has to realize that, that Francis is not a, a truthful man. He's not an honest man. Uh, he's a modernist, right? And um, the, their meat and potatoes, that's, it's lies are their meat and potatoes. This is what they thrive on. Um, he is a modernist. He, um, uh, what, it says everything that needs to be known, if people know what that means. All right. Uh, Father, we've had this email for some time that I, I wanted to get to real, real quick, if we could. It's where a viewer writes in about the, uh, the explanation for the, uh, the 144,000 saved in the, in the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And he says that uh, he provides a quote from a uh, Father Drexelius, a 17th century priest, and he uh, provides this quotation which says, Reckon all the Jews according to the computation of the apocalypse from Abraham to the day of judgment predestinate to be saved, and you shall find only 144,000 of them. Scarcely the, the thousandth part to pass on that account. Uh, I'm not saying that this explanation is infallible, of course, but apparently it is approved or at least tolerated. I personally believe it. Do you have any thoughts on that, Father? I can personally believe it. Uh, The book of the Apocalypse, or what they call the book of Revelation, in chapter 7, talks about 144,000 of the the houses of Israel. It names the 12 houses of Israel. And 12,000 from each signed, and marked with the sign of Christ, and and the fact that they will be um, brought into the church. They will be converted. But it doesn't say what he's saying. He's saying that throughout all of time, only 144,000 are going to be saved. Whereas actually, if you read the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 7, it talks about at a certain point in history, particularly with the uh, advent of the Antichrist, and the woes and, the, and God striking the earth in the chastisement, 144,000 Hebrews will be signed then, okay? <clears throat> that's different. That's a different statement from what he's saying here. Mm-hmm. And it seems that that would, um, th- there would also be a problem with uh, how there, there's the, uh, the prophecy of the, the conversion of the Jews at the mm-hmm. end of the world. If they're converting mm-hmm. yet, there's no more of them that are going to, all of them have already been <clears throat> saved. Well, well, right. But this 144,000 signed from the various tribes of Israel, mm-hmm. Corresponds to Saint Paul's teaching that in the end the Hebrews will be saved. The Hebrews will be converted. Mm-hmm. That is the conversion, as I understand it, that he that he prophesies. Sure. So again, as you say, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. harmonize well with Drexelius's uh, statement there. Okay, Father, let's end with one more email, if we can. It, it seems to have flow from that one. Uh, so this this viewer says, "What is the relationship, if any, between the modernists, the Masons, and the Jewish people?" Many people seem to write off such discussions as conspiratorial or nonsense, but others seem to put forth compelling ideas on the matter. 
From what I can gather, the central idea is that many powerful Jews hate nothing more than Christianity, and they use their power to filter the media and the entire political landscape to push only pro-Israel, anti-Christian ideas. Their argument also seems to be that the Jews want to inject absolute confusion into the mores of Western society by pushing for sodomite marriage, abortions, and racial breeding, and endless involvement in wars as a way to stamp out Western Christian identity by pushing against the desire to be fruitful and multiply. I guess the question is, are the Jews, quote, really to blame here? Or would it be more accurate to refer to the above as the work of, quote, leftists? Yes. I mean, well, yeah, the work of leftists, yeah. We, we, we refer to leftists as those, basically, who rejected any of the supernatural order of God and who are determined, basically, to um, bring about a uh, return to paganism, the philosophies of naturalism and rationalism, but to reject all influence of God, even the very memory of Christ in the world. One thing that all of those groups mentioned there have in common, the, the central thing they have in common is a, a hatred for Christ. <clears throat> Remember, it, when our Lord had taught for three years, um, uh, all of the groups of his enemies came together. The Pharisees hated the Sadducees. The Sadducees hated the Pharisees. Everybody, they hated the Zealots. They hated, everybody hated the, the, uh, <clears throat> the Herodians, <laughs> collaborators with the Romans. And they really, really had an intense hatred for each other. They were always, always vying with each other and trying to get the upper hand over each other and, and battling for the affection allegiance of the people. But they hated our Lord more. And that was the factor that finally brought them all together in one council. And that's when Caiaphas stood up, it's necessary that one man die for the people. And uh, kind of made that prophecy, right? <clears throat> the same thing's happening today. All these groups are coalescing, but be motivated by a common hatred for our Lord. And they don't even, they don't like each other. You know, I mean, you, you read about the, for example, the Democrats. <clears throat> You read about the Democrats and how they treat each other and how, how they can be so vicious with each other behind the scenes. But when it comes to uh, uh, the common hatred for anything uh, for Christ and anything of the divine order, they, they are in lockstep with each other. If the Marxist, well, the leftists in general, I mean, that's what they all have in common. Right? Uh, the common hatred for Christ. So... Um, yeah, I mean, they're all united in their naturalism, and, um, and they see Christ as the enemy. What did Voltaire say? What did Nubius say in writing his instructions to the Masons of Italy? We want to eradicate the very memory of Christ in Christianity. We want to completely obliterate any memory of Christ in Christianity. He actually paid our faith a supreme compliment. He said, if we allow even the memory to remain, it will rise from the dead, <clears throat> which is attributing tremendous power, isn't it? So, um, but that's what they all have in common, and that's, the, that's their common goal. Mm -hmm. And they will do anything possible. I mean, you talk about the communist, does he mention the Marxists there? No. Nope. Okay. <clears throat> but, the, I mean, the, the cultural Marxists are, are again, they're, they're like the think tank behind this. What do we do? To have to so pervert the culture, of especially and uniquely Christian nations, where Christendom was, right? Christian culture was. To completely subvert, pervert, invert 
the entire moral, moral order to make good evil and evil good. You know, Saint, the prophet Isaiah says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. This is exactly what they're trying to do. They have a campaign very neatly thought out. It's very hellish. It's so clever and so effective uh, to take everything that was considered vicious, vice, and make it virtuous in the world today. And people embrace that as the height of virtue. And everything that was good and holy and virtuous and make that now vicious and hateful to mankind. And you see how they've been very successful <clears throat> right here in our own country, um, in our own society, especially with the young. Um, when, I, when I say the modernists thrive on lies, this is their meat and potatoes, when I talk about Francis, right? I'm talking about contradictions here. <clears throat> contradictions between what he says he does, contradictions between what he says and what he says. You know, and one might say, well, it's kind of strong to say they lie, you know. Well, I say this. Their very concept of truth necessitates lies because they don't even believe in truth. There's no such thing as truth as we understand it. It doesn't even compute in their minds. <clears throat> so when they talk, they don't think in terms of lying because they don't think in terms of truth. They have no concept of truth. Um, it's, it's like the leftists themselves, to get back to that issue. You know, how can you tell a leftist is lying? His lips are moving. <clears throat> he has no concept of truth. <clears throat> and without any concept of truth, how, how can you have a concept of lying? <clears throat> and how else could you, for example, justify murdering millions of, of child babies in the womb? <clears throat> right? You have to be living a lie. You have to abandon, you have to be so, so completely corrupt that you've lost all sense of reality, all sense of truth, all sense of right and wrong. And unfortunately, that's what naturalism and rationalism philosophically lead to. And um, that, unfortunately, is where, where, we, where we are right now. The leftists uh, uh, forming or deforming the minds of the young people in their colleges and their, their schools. Um, with their ideology. Um, modernism is one of those ideologies. And when Pope Pius X uh, warned about modernism in his encyclical of 1907, he was warning the church that it was threatened by being taken over by, ideolo by ideologues uh, who uh, hold an ideology that is absolutely opposed to Catholicism. And uh, when Our Lady appeared at Fatima ten years later, she actually, um, you might say, gave the rest of the story. It's almost as though she completed what St. Pius X had said in 1907. When she talked about the corruption that was going on, she was talking about in the church and the need for a reform of the faithful. Um, because she was saying, now these will be the consequences. Pius, St. Pius X was telling us, this will be the consequence for the church. And Our Lady was saying, this will be the consequence for all of mankind. Um, so the, um, these, these messages from heaven, St. Pius X's encyclical on modernism, and Our Lady's words at Fatima, uh, cannot be understood if they're separated from each other. They complement each other. They're very important to, uh, uh, for a complete understanding of what our Lord is trying to tell us. Uh, but he is telling us we need to we need to listen to what he says. Um, so 
I'll wrap this up just by pointing out, I'm talking about the concept of truth. And what always comes to mind when I start talking about these things is St. Paul's words to the Thessalonians when he talks to them about the time of the coming of the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he concludes that chapter about the coming of the Antichrist by talking about those who will not be deceived by all of the display, the lying and deceiving displays of the Antichrist. And he says they will be characterized by love for truth. They will have a love for truth. How many people does one know in the world today who actually have a love for truth right now? Well, I don't know. We have to have a love for truth ourselves, and we have to uh, you know, speak that truth boldly enough that anyone out there who has a love for truth can find it. Mm-hmm. I always thought, Father, that it was really telling if you consider the, uh, the myriad of groups that constitute the left. You know, he, he mentions mm-hmm. here the modernists, the Masons, the Jews, there's the Marxists, the communists, socialists, mm-hmm. the list goes on and on. But then if you look at the right, there's good people, there's Catholics, Christians, people mm-hmm. love God, people want to save their souls, and all these are, are, are synonymous. And I think that is just a perfect indication that things are, are simple. You know, there's good and evil, there's truth and lies. Satan mm-hmm. is the father of lies. He will, there can be an infinite number of lies that he could cook up, and that's why you have so many different groups that constitute the left. But on the right, there's only one truth, mm-hmm. and, and so there's only... There's only th- one true God. There's a myriad of false gods and one true God. Yeah, but... Yeah, it's, it's true, Tom. By the way, when we talk about Jews, <laughs> I realize we're also talking about 144,000 who are going to be converted to the faith and be faithful to Christ at the most difficult time in history, when they have to, they're, they're being converted to, to face off against the Antichrist, right? And, um, you know, there are going to be heroic souls there, too. We're talking about the Jews who've, who've completely gone over to atheism, naturalism, rationalism, who completely rejected uh, God, even as their fathers knew them, even as Abraham. They've rejected the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They rejected all that. So so when we refer to them as as Jews, we have to remember also that there are those who are not of Abraham. They're they're not of the bloodline of Abraham. Uh, They came into Judaism centuries and centuries, even after Christ. They embraced it because of its promise of world dominion, but not out of love any love for God, you know. They just saw it as a vehicle to pursue their own uh, geopolitical agenda for the people. So, uh, or as a counterpoint to Christianity and Islam, as the Khazars, the steppes of Russia. And so, when we use those the terms, we, re- we re- remember uh, the words of the, in the Apocalypse, the angel to the churches, where the, the angel speaks and, and talks about those who say they are Jews but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. <clears throat> so we're talking about those who, who say they are Jews, but they are really not. <clears throat> they are not offspring of Abraham. And if they say, well, we're converts, but what they've converted to was not the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> not at all. You know? So uh, that is what sacred scripture says. You know, There are those who claim to be, but they are not really. 
So uh, we have to be, have to make that disti- that very important distinction. Yeah, I think that's a good note to end on, Father. I think we covered a lot tonight. Oh, yeah, well, I guess we did. Uh, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here tonight, Father. No, I appreciate it. Thank that. you. No thanks problem. for your perseverance. Um, thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.